Happy Easter. Some of you we haven't seen since Lent, partly because of travel. Sometimes we're away for Easter uh, or the weeks following. I was out of town for the last week and change. Uh, it was wonderful to be away and wonderful to be back. Um, it's always a special treat to be able to visit with Cardinal Burke and to spend time with him and to be reinvigorated, especially today, this Sunday, the second Sunday after Easter, um, because we celebrate the Good Shepherd. Christ is the Good Shepherd who lays down his life for his sheep. The visit that I made was with some very good friends, um, one couple who's Catholic and uh, two other families who are, who are devout, devout Christians, but not Catholic yet. And, and it's, 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 a, it's helpful um, to be able to, um, to, to point out aspects of the faith by virtue of the places that we're visiting, whether it be the tomb of a saint, whether it be the very, very large tomb, which is St. Peter's Basilica, um, or a shrine, uh, or even the site where some, um, some important event took place. Uh, and it's also good because it makes us look at everything in a way with brand new eyes. So to, to take them to an altar, even a, a glorious altar where the, uh, the once incorrupt St. Agnes of Montepulciano uh, was venerated for centuries, and it's a, it's a glorious parish church with a, uh, two very eager Dominican priests who are, who are trying to keep the faithful coming to Mass and trying to bring them into the rosary and the, and the divine office. And as beautiful as this church is, built in the very early 1300s, with a, a worthy chapel off to the side to Christ crucified, <clears throat> when a Protestant walks in, all they see is an altar and the tomb of a saint and, the, and a statue of the very same saint. They don't, they don't see, see an image of Jesus. Granted, there's a, there's, a, there's a small crucifix off to the side, uh, granted, if the altar were still of, of the more traditional configuration, they'd see more attention brought down to the altar by virtue of the glory of the altar itself and the crucifix and the candles. It's good for us when we, when we evangelize, when we are witnesses of Christ, to remember how this is going to sound to someone who's never heard this before, how this will come across to someone who has who heard it but hasn't believed it yet, or how this is going to look, how their imagination will, will fit all these pieces together. We, we recognize that in the methodology of Christ, our teacher, Christ the Good Shepherd, time and time again, even after the resurrection, he appeared to the apostles who believed but didn't believe. They believe and trusted in him, but they didn't believe yet that he had risen from the dead. Or even after he shows himself to them. They're described as believing and yet unbelieving. Believing that, he's, that this is him, but not yet believing and understanding that his resurrected body is as real as he's presenting himself. So he goes even further. Right After declaring to them that that he's in their presence, 
He presses them further to explore his resurrected body, not just to look, but to touch the wounds in his hand and in his side. And there is still more that they will know and understand and believe after the gift of the Holy Spirit. Our Lord knew this was very difficult for them to grasp. It wasn't enough for him to simply appear to them once. And how understanding and compassionate he was when they had been told already several times, go to Galilee. They were told that at the Last Supper. They were told that by Mary Magdalene and the women. And, there, and Christ even told them that again himself. And still, more than a week after the resurrection, they have yet to go to Galilee. He doesn't come and, and, and excoriate them. He will, he'll chastise them, but his first words to them are, Words of peace, peace. Don't be afraid. Peace be with you. In a very specific and, and beautiful way, we see this in his patience with St. Peter. He tells him at the Last Supper that he will be sifted through like wheat, but when he returns, he will confirm the brethren. He's not saying this to, to make a prediction. The way we might tell someone, you're, you're going to drop the ball. I'm going to tell you to do this, and I'm going to ask you to do it tomorrow, and I'm going to tell you now that you're going to forget to do it. Our Lord isn't, isn't telling Peter ahead of time about his betrayal before the cock crows in order to reemphasize that you're really a disappointment and I'm really in charge. as much as it's going to be to, to, to lay the seeds so that Peter does not despair, so that Peter does not kill himself as Judas did, so that he's moved to, peer, to tears of, of true contrition rather than tears of, of self-loathing, tears of hope rather than tears of despair. And how long does he take to restore Peter. It's not right then on Easter Sunday. Even without their reconciliation having been played out as explicitly as it will up at the Sea of Galilee, he still appears to them. He breathes on them. He gives them the authority to forgive sins and to retain sins. It'll be later, in time, in time, our Lord will ask him three times, Peter, Simon, Son of John, do you love me? Do you love me more than these? Do you love me? It's very deliberate. One of the very interesting questions that came my way as we're exploring Many, many things um, that for us don't even need explanation, whether it be St. Peter's Basilica or great old churches. The question came to me, so, so when did the Catholic Church start? And I'm, I'm, I'm both delighted and baffled 
Because if someone's asking me the question, when did the Catholic Church start? It means they're interested in knowing more about the Catholic Church. But it's also baffling because it's a question we don't even, we don't even think about. And so in, instead of just immediately just slapping down the question as though that's a really stupid question, of course, Jesus started the Catholic Church. Of course, it was born from his blood and water flowing from his side and celebrates his birthday on Pentecost with the gift of the Holy Spirit. That's when the church really began to exist. But there was a more specific question, really, about, well, when, when do you have priests and deacons and, and bishops? Okay, well, again, we can read that in St. Ignatius of Antioch, St. Clement of Rome. We can also see all of them mentioned at different places in the New Testament. Not all three ranks mentioned in one sentence in the New Testament, but it's all there. What we take for granted, which we then need to be able to explain to others and also appreciate for the, for the marvel that it really is, is that Christ established himself as the good shepherd and very deliberately constituted the apostles as shepherds over our souls in a way which was deliberate, in a way which their further actions were according to his desire. Rather than what what we have to imagine being the alternative way of thinking about it is that Jesus really is God. He really did die. He really did rise. He really is my Lord and Savior. He really did establish the church in an ambiguous way. He really did establish Peter over the apostles, but in a limited way. And basically, after our Lord is ascended into heaven, then it's sort of a a free-for-all, a very holy free-for-all, but a free-for-all. And it could have gone this way, and it could have gone that way, but it didn't. We have to imagine the good faith of our non-Catholic Christian brothers and sisters who are imagining and, and observing the history of of the church in the first century, but not making the connection that that is the Catholic church and that is the way Christ wanted it all to unfold. Now, maybe partly it's because of of simply the scandal of sin, the mystery of evil. How How could the good Lord's plan include bad things. Well, of course, that's not his plan. God never wills evil. He never wants bad to happen. But he has a way by divine providence to manage everything, even when bad things happen, even when we defy his will. So whether it be St. Peter denying him, or St. Peter fudging things with the eating with the Jews and eating differently with the Gentiles. Or whether it be other tragic moments in the history of the church. That, that doesn't give us in any way, it doesn't even begin to prompt in us the thought that, well, this obviously isn't the church. This isn't of God. No, rather, God constituted the church with Christ as its head and us 
as members of the body of Christ. So I I present this to you, maybe you'll see where I'm going, is that there's a way in which we very serenely recognize God even even in these unfortunate events of the first century in a way that those unfortunate events, they don't characterize the early church for us. They don't characterize the first century. Rather, it's simply, this is God and this is his church. And God didn't constitute his church of good angels. He constituted his church with the baptized faithful who were trying to be holy. That's the very same church that exists in the 21st century. Missteps, but those missteps don't characterize the entirety of it. This is still God with his will and divine providence and the Holy Spirit. And the church is still constituted by baptized faithful who are trying to cooperate with God's grace to become holy. The same church, the same body of Christ. A very specific part of this is these shepherds. I had a very interesting talk with uh, a guard at the Basilica of St. Francis of Assisi. If you haven't been yet, you'll notice in some of these most sacred sites, whether it be in the Holy Land, by which I do not mean Ireland, or St. Peter's Basilica, or the Basilica of Santa Maria Degli Angeli, Our Lady of the Angels, where the, the Portuncola, the little chapel that St. Francis rebuilt, is in the bottom of the valley, or up in the town of Assisi at the Basilica where he's buried, all of these holy places are guarded with riot fences and Italian military with machine guns. Probably unloaded, but still, machine guns nonetheless. So walking into, walking through the security checkpoint to go into St. Peter, into St. Francis Basilica in Assisi, I opened up my bag and the, the young, um, the young man said, that's fine. And the young lady who was there, maybe 19, maybe 21, maybe 23 at the most, probably 20 or 21, just looks at me and, and says, so, and I think the young man actually prompted her, um, to say, are you going to ask him? And she looks at me and she says, is there good in the world? And then is there, is there really a God? And that question went on and on to, have you ever repent? Have you ever, uh, have you ever um, regretted having become a priest? And she, you know, she's standing there, combat boots and fatigues and this and flak jacket and machine gun, probably unloaded. And my street clothes, you know, it's a white collar and a, and a jacket or a sweater. And she asked me, also, so you're a priest, right? So are you, a, are you an Anglican or are you, she didn't ask Anglican, but are you an English priest with, you know, with a wife? Or are you Catholic? And why do you wear that white collar? And that led into a strange conversation, or not strange, but a, a memorable one about how she 
and I've heard this so many times from Italians, I don't believe in, in priests without wives. I believe in priests who have wives. Italians have a big hang-up on this, but obviously not just Italians. And there is a good bit of resolution about, well, it's, it's always a free choice. I wasn't forced into the priesthood. It's a, it's a, it's a sacrifice I, I freely made, and, and it'll always be a sacrifice. She, I mean, she wanted to know about difficult moments. She wanted to know about, um, about the reality of this way of being a Christian. And when, when she was satisfied that it was truly free and truly a sacrifice, and she didn't have to feel sorry for me, she made this observation. I would never be able to do that. I have such admiration for that. I would never be able to do that. I definitely intend to get married and have kids. But she said it in such a way that it may help me realize that what's, what's underneath the surface there is this guilty conscience that, in her, and I'm speaking in her voice, I'm not a real Christian or I'm not a good enough Christian because I couldn't be celibate. That seems to be clearly what's, what's lurking in the background. But if someone knows that they have been baptized and confirmed and loved by God and given the Holy Spirit and given a vocation that's, that's leading to holiness and to, and to sanctity and a life in heaven, I don't, I don't need to be disappointed that I can't be like those, those other people who have made, who have made other sacrifices. It would, it would be equivalent to, if you can appreciate this, it would be equivalent to a secular priest like myself thinking, I'm not really a priest. It's the monks who are real priests. If you want a real priest, you should go to a, to a Benedictine or a Trappist or a Carthusian. Those are the real priests. I'm, I'm, I'm not even, I don't even deserve to be called a priest. That's analogous to what I think is troubling a great many souls where they think, I'm not celibate, I'm not really a Christian. It's the celibates, it's the priests and the nuns who are really, they're, they're the real ones. That's a, that's a problem. Even though we recognize the hierarchy, we have been given shepherds to, to serve us. We haven't been given shepherds by Christ to make us feel bad that I'm not the shepherd, right? That I'm not the bishop, that I'm not a cardinal, that I'm not the pope. That's not the purpose of our shepherds. The purpose of the shepherds is, is, to, is to love us and to feed us and to clean us and to teach us and to be patient with us, just as Christ was with the apostles. And so it's interesting going back to Rome now, 20 years later, and, and walking around and, and, and looking at priests who visit Rome and priests who live in Rome, priests who study in Rome, priests who work in Rome. And just as clear as it was 20 years ago, but honestly, perhaps even more clear to me now than it was then, there are some who walk around like peacocks. 
And they may be in a suit and they may be in a cassock. That's not the question. There's some who walk around and they are so impressed with themselves. And there are others who walk around in such a way that you might think, he would actually say good morning to me. Or if I asked him a question, he wouldn't bite off my head. Or maybe he's actually a nice guy. I say this because all of this leads to our praying for our shepherds and our praying for more shepherds, our praying for more vocations to the priesthood. Christ very deliberately intended to establish a church as a concrete reality on St. Peter, not just as an amorphous body of believers who somehow mystically share a bond through baptism, but who very clearly share the bond of being obedient to Christ through his church, through a man, through a bishop, through priests and deacons. And he won't be holy all the time, but he's still our shepherd. And so we need... We need to pray for our young men, whether they be our servers, who we put on the spot from time to time, because we admire them and we're grateful for their service. And it's hard to not think of them as potential future priests when they're, when they're dressed like a tiny little baby priest. Unfortunately, the rubber duck store in Florence was out of priest rubber ducks and bishop rubber ducks. But they did, they did have nun rubber ducks. So the nuns in Linden, Virginia, will get a nun rubber duck for their Easter gift. As much as we see them or other, any, any soul, sometimes we, see, we just see a young man and he's praying. And we think, he, I can see him becoming a priest one day. Pray for him. Encourage him. Without putting him on a pedestal, without making the priesthood seem ultimately unattainable, on his own, in his, in, in his good time, he'll realize, I'm not worthy of this. And in fact, I wish God were not calling me to this. But I will be done, as Christ prayed in the Garden of Gethsemane. Encourage them in such a way that it's beautiful, it's noble, it's necessary. As a, as a, as, as a way to, 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 to serve as Christ served and to love as Christ loved. To give up your life. Not as a way of avoiding work or avoiding reality. Right? Who are, so that goes into who are the ones whom you think might have a vocation to the priesthood? Is it the ones whom you think, uh, no, he could never work. He could never hold down a job. He would never be a good husband or a good father. That's not the one I'm encouraging you to point out and say, hey, I think you should think about the seminary. And don't entice him by thinking that, oh, maybe you'll be important one day. Maybe you'll be famous one day. 
I would encourage him just to meditate on the cross and Christ offering him his body and his soul for our salvation. Christ went to great lengths to establish Peter and to form his shepherds. It's already just a few weeks after Easter, and we're, we're not even following a sequence of, of historical events after the resurrection, but all of a sudden we're back into John 10. Christ is the good shepherd, and he established shepherds for us. He was forming the apostles on the Sea of Galilee to be shepherds, to be simple, to be humble, to be hardworking, to be faithful, to persevere, to never quit, to love each other, to be patient with each other, to be wise teachers, to know how to, how to correct and how to chastise. It took a great deal of time for them to be ready for Pentecost. So we truly, really and truly, we give thanks to God for establishing the church and for giving us shepherds. And fulfilling all of his promises. Because we know on this rock he built his church. And the gates of hell will not prevail against it. And to this shepherd, to these shepherds, he has given the keys to the kingdom of heaven. And we are witnesses of all these things. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen.